0: Well, good morning. You guys can say good, say good morning when I say good morning. good morning. Good morning. Oh, that feels good. That feels good. Hey, Dan. Well, good morning. Welcome to Scarlet City Church. My name is Jacob Beach. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. And congratulations to everyone with smartphones for getting here on time. I didn't check the lobby at 10 o'clock, but I wasn't sure if there was any super Christians here who got here an hour early. Well, this week is also spring break week, I believe, for a couple different schools. Anyone affiliated with schools who made it here? Anyone off this week? Anyone? Two people? Everyone else is like in Florida. They're like, they're out. Well, this morning, we're going to cover a lot of scripture, and it's a lot of content. Jay and I uh, uh, talked this week, and we made the plan to break up this passage into two separate sections Uh, So this week, I'm going to cover one section, uh, and he will cover the same section, but from a different angle, different pieces of this narrative this morning. We're going to be in Exodus, uh, what is it, Exodus 7 through 10, that's four chapters. We're going to touch on uh, not every single word, Uh, that's a lot of words, but to refresh us, let me give us a quick introduction of sort of where we've been uh, so far in Exodus, the focus of the book of Exodus is the Lord, is Yahweh, okay? Yahweh is the Hebrew name uh, of God used in the Bible. If you ever notice in your Bible, if you're ever reading in there and you see, uh, you see the word Lord, and it's, it's got a capital L, and then the O-R-D is also capitalized, but it's like smaller. It's like lowercase, uppercase. Do you get what I'm talking about? Anyone seen that before? That's usually when uh, in the Old Testament... Uh, God's formal name is being used, YHWH. It's God's sacred name, sacred name. That's uh, His proper name, and it, it came to us originally in Exodus three, uh, and it's used all throughout the Old Testament. and And Exodus is about God. We mentioned that. And in our rather large passage today, we're going to look at the plagues. We're going to look at the plague narrative, the time when God is doing some uh, pretty glorious, pretty miraculous uh, acts. God is poised to show his might. He's he's poised to reveal himself and his character to his people. He's going to reveal himself to the Egyptians uh, who've enslaved God's people, and he's going to reveal himself to uh, the entire world. And this is what God has been doing in Exodus, right? He's been, we've been talking about that in the last couple sermons. He's been revealing himself in different ways, through the burning bush, through some conversations with Moses, and now he's going to uh, do it on a very large-scale level before the Egyptians. Now, there's a temptation when we come to passages like this, right? You might be, hey, look, a prop. Hey, you might be reading in your Bible, right? You're, you're kind of like reading through Exodus, and you're like, okay, great. Uh, Egypt, Moses burning bush, that's fine, that's fine. Okay, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He sends 10 plagues. He decimates the land of Egypt. Okay, we're going to skip. <laughs> All right, past the Red Sea, Jesus. Okay, everything's great again, right? Okay, so that's the temptation. That can be the temptation, uh, when we come to passages like this, right, where you, you see ten plagues, you see four chapters of people struggling between uh, uh, between the the hardship that God is sort of bringing upon the lands of egypt, and in that temptation, I want us to sort of resist that today. I want us to to engage with some of these hard uh, passages. I think if our fundamental understanding about God, which comes through his word, if that understanding is that this life is all about us, or that God exists to make me feel good, uh, or that all of creation sort of revolves around me, then I think we're all going to be in a bit of trouble when hard times come. Hard passages like this, like these four chapters we're going to look at today, they, they raise some difficult questions and issues, but I think by leaning into them, they help us when we ourselves go through hard seasons of life. So that's why we're spending two weeks in, this, in these four chapters. Here at Scarlet City, we believe that uh, God is about the proclamation and demonstration of his own glory, and he is always for the good of his people. Sometimes that can be hard to see or it can be hard to understand in the context of certain stories and passages of the Bible, but especially when we talk about God's sovereignty, God's plan. So like a diamond today, I hope that, uh, the, I, hope that I can lift up the scriptures sort of hold them up to the light, turn it around, and allow uh, the truth of God to refract in different ways as we uh, study it this morning. So let's get to the story, right? Okay, we're, we're going to jump around through Exodus 7 through 10. It's four chapters. I'm going to try to do justice to the passage. I'm going to try to tell the story well uh, without sitting here and actually reading all like 3,200 words of it. That would basically be the whole sermon. So I'm going to put, uh, we're going to have a slide up here that said these are the passages we're going to touch on uh, over the next few minutes. I want to try to give an over, overview of what we see. Okay, we good? We're locked in? We're ready? All right, so when we last left, when we last left the story, uh, it was Pharaoh last week, the leader of Egypt, imposing some harsh work conditions on the enslaved uh, Israelites, the Hebrew people. Moses and his brother, Aaron, come to Pharaoh with a message from Yahweh saying, let my people go. Now, this morning, when I tried to give my daughter a hug before I left, she was, she was still in bed. She kind of pushed me. She pushed me, she gave me a stiff arm, and she said, go to work. (laughs) So Pharaoh, kind of like Noel, refused the messenger of God, okay? That's me. Now, the enslavement of the Hebrew people is more than just about getting work done, right? It's more than just about enslavement, just like Mike talked about last week. But in some senses, uh, Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron was, go to work. So then the Lord speaks to Moses, and we'll pick it up here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They, uh, they did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So God says to Moses, your brother, he's gonna help speak from you. You guys need to go tell Pharaoh that I command that he let my people go. But God also says, he also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart in the midst of showing these great signs and wonders in Egypt. God actually tells them that it's not going to work, that Pharaoh will not be moved, he will not listen, he will not be convinced. And one of the many summarizing verses that we're going to discuss happens to be right here in verses 4 and 5. God basically says, I will bring my judgment on Egypt so that they may know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh, the one and only but before the plagues come, Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, okay, they go to his royal court sort of before the, uh, the 10 plagues, and we're really only talking about the first nine plagues today. But before all that happens, there's a prequel, okay, there's like a, there's like a pre-fight. This starts in, verses, in verse 8, we're going to look at 8 through 13 now, still in chapter 7. It says, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron... Aaron's staff swallowed up their stabs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, this is a bit of a sign of what to come, right? We said a prequel. This is like two boxers sparring, right? But this is more of a spiritual battle than a physical battle. It's a battle between warring lords, if you will. Last week, Mike's sermon was titled The War Between Lords, right? And my first thought was like, uh oh. Like, not uh-oh, because we're not allowed to share stuff, but I was like, is this the exact same thing that I'm going to talk about? But in some ways it is, right? Because, and that's okay, because uh, there are multiple themes that run throughout Exodus, and this is one of the biggest, most significant themes that happens in the first dozen or so chapters. It's the question that we ask ourselves, and that, and that the Egyptians are supposed to ask themselves, who the Hebrews are supposed to ask themselves, who is the true Lord? So similar to last week, there is a battle going on. one side, we have Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, whose messenger and representative is Moses and his brother. And on the other side, we have Pharaoh, and we have the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh is more than simply a leader, right? He's more than just some elected official of Egypt. The Egyptians saw Pharaoh as divine, as a, as a god-man who represented both the gods and humanity. Now, this contest, right, this contest between, uh, between Yahweh and Pharaoh, it's more, than, it's more than just a little conflict, okay? It's bigger than Hatfields and McCoys, okay, That's, which was a very bloody conflict. It's bigger than Tupac versus Biggie, okay, which was kind of a heavy, sad conflict, rest in peace. This is even bigger, okay, this is even bigger than the 2017 t-shirt showdown controversy between Marilyn Manson and Justin Bieber. It's bigger than that. That's petty, Now, this is even bigger than any of these things. It's it's more than just simple lifestyle differences, right? It's not just about worldview disparities. This is God making a grand display of his sovereignty and his might for the entire world to see. It's a judgment on the Egyptians, on their false gods, and on their divine leader, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. It's over the question of who is the one true God? Who is sovereign over the movements in the universe? Who rules over the heavens and over creation in the earth? This initial interaction, this prequel meeting, is a model of the plagues that will follow. God shows his power. Pharaoh resists the obvious conclusion. He refuses to yield and then things begin to escalate. So let's move on to the first plague. Let's pick back up in Exodus 7 verse 14. I'm going to read 14 through 25 now. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened; he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take your hand, excuse me, take in your hand the staff That turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and I shall turn it into blood. The not excuse me, the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Continuing in verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and in the water and all the water in the Nile turned into blood and the fish of the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them and the Lord as the Lord had said Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even and did and did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile. 7 full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So the first plague is turning the Nile River into blood. The Nile was in many ways the life force of the Egyptians, okay? And its seasonal flooding was what gave the Egyptians their strength that gave them uh, uh, fertility in, in growing their crops it, it, it represented growth, and the Nile in Egyptian uh, 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 in the Egyptian religion the Nile was personified by a god. Okay, it was personified by the god Happy H A P I. Now, in turning the river to blood, God not only not only does he create an inconvenience a, a, a significant inconvenience for the Egyptians, but he is also directly making an attack on happy's dominion, happy's ability to supply the Egyptians uh, with their needs, with their fertility, with, uh, uh, with, with what they needed to be strong. And in some ways, this does not make happy very happy, right? Puns. So the plague is working on multiple levels, okay? It's, it's a judgment on Pharaoh. It's a judgment on the Egyptians' disobedience to let God's people go. It's an attack on their god, that they attribute fertility and sustenance to, showing uh, that sustenance, uh, the, the plague shows that sustenance only comes from the Lord, right? It comes from Yahweh. It's a display of God's power. It's a display of his control over creation that Pharaoh's magicians are only able to match on a small scale. And Pharaoh refuses to back down. His heart remains hardened. So it's on to the next plague. The second plague is frogs. Okay, Aaron puts his staff in the Nile and swarms and swarms of frogs come up to it. Frogs are everywhere, okay? Frogs in your shoes, frogs in your bed, frogs in your toilet, frogs in your coffee pot, frogs everywhere. And this too, the magicians, <coughs> excuse me, in some ways the magicians are able to, to, to match this as well, right? They're like, look, we can make frogs come out of the river too. But that doesn't really help anything, right? That doesn't prove much other than increasing the amount of frogs that are in the land of Egypt. So when we pick up, let's pick it up here in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 8. And I'll read 8 verses, uh, excuse me, I'll read 8, 8 through 10. It says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and, and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will, let your pe- I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So we see again the purpose of this plague so far is that they may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There was to be no trusting in, for example, the god Heket, okay? This is a goddess who, believed, um, to, who was believed to breathe life into the Egyptians when they're born, right? Uh, they, they sort of come off this, this um, what is it? It's like a, a potter's wheel in a way, right? And then Heket takes them, breathes life into them, and then they're born into the world. And this Heket was personified with the head of a frog, which, by the way, if I'm mispronouncing these and anyone is like an Egyptian expert, just... Let me be. H <laughs> E Q E T, Heket. I'm going with Heket. So, this Heket, right? Okay, this Heket is personified by the head of a frog, okay? So, therefore, frogs were sort of seen as her blessings of fruitfulness and of life. God multiplied the frogs so aggressively that they were seen as a curse as opposed to a blessing. Heket is not the giver of fruitfulness and life, but only Yahweh. That's what the second plague represents. And his dark magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, were only able to make more frogs show up. They weren't able to actually control them or make them disperse. So at Moses' request to Yahweh, the frogs die. They pile up the frog bodies, and the whole of Egypt stank. Pharaoh here sounds like he might be coming around. But as soon as the frogs are dead, as soon as they're dead and gone, his heart is hardened, and he refuses to release the Hebrews from Egypt, their slavery. So you can see a pattern here, right? Just after the first sign and even the first two plagues, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. God does an extraordinary and astonishing miracle in the form of a plague that works on multiple levels. It's an argument against uh, uh, Egypt's religious system, right? And it's, uh, it's a judgment on the Egyptian people for their mistreatment and their enslavement of God's people. And then Pharaoh begs for mercy. He wants, to, he wants it to relent. He wants the plague to be over. He wants the, the difficulty to be over, but he eventually hardens his heart and does not agree to release the people. So there's more plagues, okay? There's, there's, there's six, mo- seven more plagues? Seven more plagues. before We're not gonna talk about the 10th plague uh, this week. We're gonna talk about it in two weeks. But the third plague is gnats, okay? It's gnats swarming on every living thing in Egypt. The fourth plague are flies. That terrorized all of Egypt except for where the Israelites live. Wherever the Israelites are living, there's no flies. The fifth plague is the death of all Egyptian livestock. The sixth plague are painful boils that cover the bodies of the Egyptians, but not the Hebrews. The seventh is hail, significant hail that destroys any surviving livestock and most of the vegetation. It's followed by the eighth plague, which are locusts. Locusts cover the land. They're everywhere. They destroy and eat and lay their eggs and everything that's left. They destroy all the vegetation. Everything's gone. And then finally, there's the ninth plague, uh, which plunges the non Hebrew parts of town into total darkness for three days. Now, some of the plagues are inconveniences, right? Some of the plagues are annoying bugs. When I lived, uh, I lived for three years before we moved back here uh, last year, I lived for three years in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, and, and all there is in that, in that whole state, it seems like, is cockroaches, okay? Cockroaches are like the most disgusting bug that I can think of, okay? Like, they're terrible. And being from Ohio, I sort of thought, I thought like when you saw a cockroach or that like you had cockroaches or something, like, I thought that was like, oh man, there's like a bigger problem here, like we need to get somebody up in here and like fix these bugs. But in North Carolina, they're just like everywhere, okay? They're like crawling on things, they're on the ground, they're in your house, And let me tell you, like every single time we found one in our house, which was like maybe once a month, once every other month, it might as well have been like 8,000 cockroaches if it was one. Like I couldn't take it. And that's like a kind of a small thing, right? That's an inconvenience, it's annoyance. It's like, oh, gnats are like crawling on me, frogs are like crawling all around, this is annoying. But then others are very serious, significantly more serious than that. Livestock, livestock and crops being completely decimated, right? Hail destroying buildings and crops, injuring people. It sort of sounds like the, like, thundersnow thing that was happening in, in uh, uh, New England this weekend, right? Thundersnow. And then darkness covering the land. Imagine losing power, okay? When we lose power, it's more of an annoyance to us, right? Because we have phones, we've got flashlights, uh, but, like, imagine being in Egypt thousands of years ago, and you have nothing, no iPhone flashlight, no uh, uh, normal flashlight. Do people, still ha- do people still have those? I do. I've got, like, a mag light. It's more of, like, a baseball bat, I feel like you can Okay, but anyway, you've got nothing in Egypt, right? It's just darkness covering everything. You go outside, you stay inside, it doesn't matter, there's fear, you couldn't go anywhere because it was completely pitch, pitch black. And in these plagues, God is unleashing his creative forces. He's unleashing everything that he has to portray to the enemies of God's people, and against their false gods, like those that we mentioned uh, before. But then there's others as well, right? Like Apis and Ptah, those, are, those uh, are gods who ruled over the livestock and over living things. They were personified as having heads like calves and bulls. And then, of course, there's Amon-Ra, which is like the biggest Egyptian god, the sun god, uh, whom God is shaming with the ninth plague. All of these plagues are ultimately against Pharaoh himself. They're against the religious system that Egypt has. God is using weapons that only he has. He's making moves that only he can make to reveal that he alone is God, not Pharaoh, not the Egyptian gods, not Ra, not anyone but himself. And like I mentioned before, I'll leave the final plague uh, in the Passover story to talk about in two weeks. Okay, so we made it, right? We made it through the plagues. We made it through the story. Let's talk a little bit about the significance of this story. And I'm only going to talk about a few angles about it. I know that uh, I mentioned this already, but next week, Jay is going to be talking specifically uh, about Pharaoh's hardened heart and some of the reactions uh, to God's sovereignty and even some of our own reactions to the ideas of God being sovereign. But uh, for us, let's continue to focus on the plagues themselves. The purpose of these plagues was to show the Israelites and Pharaoh and the Egyptians and everyone That there was no other God than him. Let's put up the slide of the next one. There you go. So in each of these verses, you can look at them if you want, but I'm not going to read them. It's the same message coming from God. God is consistently putting forward in the midst of the plagues, in the midst of the story, in the midst of different things happening. He's consistently putting forward the same message, the same theme. And that is that you will know. You will know. It depends. The you sometimes changes, right? Sometimes it's Pharaoh. Sometimes it's the Hebrews. Sometimes it's the Egyptians. Sometimes it's the whole world and the other nations that are looking at Egypt, which was the superpower of the day. All of them are saying, you will, God is saying to them, you will know that I am Yahweh. You will know that I am the one true God. You will know that all in the earth belongs to me, to the Lord. Pharaoh's actions throughout Exodus tell us exactly what he thinks about God, right? He's enslaved the Hebrew people. He's mistreated them. He's killed their babies. He's drowned their babies in the Nile River. He's imposed harsh conditions on them. He's worked them unfairly. He thinks that he's God. He is playing God. He wants to go down at the end of the day as G-O-D, God. And the plagues are God's declaration that his people do not belong to Pharaoh, but they belong to himself. They're not Pharaohs. They're not happies. They're not Raz. They do not belong to idols. They do not belong to kings or rulers or Pharaohs. They belong to God. God's people are Yahweh's to rule over, to care for, to be worshiped by. All of creation came from Yahweh. Creation continues on, day after day, because Yahweh allows it to. This is the declaration that the plagues are making. In God's opponent, Pharaoh, his response to the plagues should be different. They should be things like fear and wonder. It should be humility. It should be worship. It should be yielding. Yet still, he clenches his fists. He holds on to control. And just think about that for a minute. Think about Pharaoh's response. I think it's easy for us to look at this story and to think of ourselves or, or to even to see ourselves in the story more like Moses, right? Or or maybe we're God's people, we're we're God's faithful people who are under the rule of an unfair, unfair and hateful regime. Now, some of that may, of course, be true, and those are very legitimate ways to to understand the story. We live in a fallen world, right, where sickness and pain and hurt are all around us. It affects us deeply. And we shouldn't dismiss that. I don't want to dismiss that. But think about, specifically, Pharaoh's response to God's wonderful acts. Think about his response to God's call to give up, to yield, to change, to worship him. He turns away. He refuses he continues believing in the face of overwhelming evidence that he himself is still God, that he himself is sovereign. Now, I know personally I have to identify with that at least a little bit. I think that, I, I think that most of us, and I hope, I hope a lot of us here can be honest with ourselves uh, about it and say that we often feel the exact same way. We often feel that we are sovereign, that we are in control that we are God. And so many times I've thought personally, right? I got this. I can do this. I don't need God. I will not yield. I will not give this up. I will not uh, do this thing. And it reminds me of a story from about a year ago. I wasn't feeling very well. Uh, it, It had been one of those sort of, I haven't really felt very good for two days, and I'm feeling worse, but And my wife kept telling me, she's like, you need to go to the urgent care. Like, you need to go, like, to the doctor. You need to do something. And I was like, I'm good. I've got DayQuil, okay? (laughs) Like, DayQuil will fix everything. (laughs) And I could barely get out of bed, right? Like, I'm drinking DayQuil. I can't get out of bed. I'm feeling like everything feels bad. And Ashley, like, drugged me to the urgent care because she was like, you're going to die. And not for real, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. But so I got in there, okay, and it's like a long wait, right? They're like, all right, someone will see you hopefully within the next hour. And immediately I threw up, like, in the, in the lobby, okay? Don't think about it. I know it's disgusting. That is one way to get in the front of the line, by the way, if you're, like, going somewhere. <laughs> Just be like, I'm here and I'm throwing up, y'all. So I got there, I threw up in the lobby, and then I passed out. <laughs> the the day quill hadn't, hadn't worked, I woke up like 30 minutes later, I had an IV in, and they were like, uh, you know, we took your blood, we like checked you out, you have bronchitis, you have strep throat, and you have the flu. (laughs) So they gave me like 100 prescriptions, and I got better, I'm okay. But this, okay, so that story, right, that's a physical description of what can be true of our spiritual experience, right? It's pride, okay? It's believing that we know best, right? I know better than anyone else, okay? It's a refusal to yield in the midst of overwhelming odds and, and, and God moving in our life, right? We act like Pharaoh. We want to be like Pharaoh. We think that we're in control. We think that we don't need help. We think that we don't need anything but what we can do on our own, determination and grit and will and strength. But God calls us to recognize that this world is, actually his, that all of creation of his, right, is his, right? That every person, every thing, every dollar, every house, every opportunity, every uh, atom and nucleus and other science things, everything belongs to the Lord, all of it. And just like the plagues, God is willing to stand against every idol that we worship in our lives. Whether that's people-pleasing, whether it's finding your worth in a job title or a paycheck, maybe it's worshiping physical attractiveness or trusting in your own knowledge and abilities, God is concerned, Yahweh is concerned with defeating and breaking the things that we hold on to so tightly. His plagues are not merely to to make the Egyptians miserable, right? He's not just up there uh, like like a kid with a magnifying glass on an anthill, right? They're all to prove a greater point. God is saying with a loud voice for all the world, so that all the world can hear. Why worship a river god? Why worship Pharaoh? Why worship Ra? Hopi didn't create you. Ra didn't create you. I created you. Ra does not sustain you. I sustain you. I am Yahweh. Why worship money? I control everything in the world. I am the giver of salvation. What more could you buy with money that I haven't already given to you? I am Yahweh. Why worship approval? I have already said that I will love anyone who calls upon my name by faith. What greater approval could you possibly get than from the creator of the universe and the sovereign ruler of the earth? I am Yahweh. And to think about this in the process of the plagues. God could have simply sent, he could have sent a warrior angel with a sword and fire and all the Egyptians. He could have just wiped them all out and let the Hebrews just walk out of Egypt and grab anything on their way. He could have done anything. He could have done it any way. He could have made Pharaoh, when Moses comes to him in the very first place, he could have made him respond and say like, you know what? Yeah, God sounds great. I'm going to worship him now. Y'all want to leave? You go leave. Worship God in the wilderness. That sounds great. He could have done it maybe even with one plague, right? Maybe he turns the nile to, to blood or, or maybe the, the gnats come, the flies come, and, and he's just like, that is bad. I'm going to worship God now. He could have done it any way that he wanted, okay? He And these are all real questions that we can ask, right? These are issues. And all of these issues, I think, come down to this. Is God allowed to do what he wills? Think about it in this story. God wanted to do something big. He wanted to make a sweeping, grand display of his power and sovereignty. He wanted to show himself to his people and to the whole world. Yet still, to us, it's unsatisfying in some ways, right? Why is that? Why, why do we have these questions sometimes? Why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Why did it have to be ten plagues? Why did it go down the way that it did? And some of the answers to those questions are given in the text, and while of, and others, other answers are still a mystery to us. But fundamentally, I wonder if it's at, at the heart of this is actually about the answers is about wanting answers to the questions as much as. Uh, as much for our own satisfaction and for our own uh, understanding and, and even approval, right? Does God meet my standards? Does God's action, do God's actions meet my approval? They certainly didn't meet Pharaoh's approval. God didn't fit into Pharaoh's understanding. He didn't fit into Pharaoh's sensibilities. And he certainly didn't fit into the way that Pharaoh wanted to rule over God's people. Did that make him worthy of worship? Is God's worthiness Based on our view of him? Is God's goodness based on what I think about him as good? Does he meet my approval? Is he enough for me? Is he who we think he is? These are real questions. Real questions to wrestle with and ones that I personally struggle with. Not to play the cliffhanger game, but but Jay's going to talk a little bit more about this next week. But let me at least say that God is not interested in meeting our standards and approval. He's way above that. And that doesn't mean he doesn't care for us or love us, but it means that he's greater, that he is bigger, that he is way above something as simple and small as our approval and our standards. And this is exactly what makes the gospel story so astounding and beautiful. The same God who is unbelievably glorious, who holds dominion over all creation, has has power to, to, to do all the plagues, has power over the Egyptians, over Pharaoh. He's beyond our understanding, okay? He's transcendent, he's great, he's big. That same God came to us as a human, died for our sins, and offers us salvation, not as a hoop to jump through, but freely by his grace through faith. That's the same guy, that's the same God, that's the same Yahweh. He's both transcendent and imminent, He's powerful and he's gentle. He judges and he forgives. He brings plagues upon his enemies and he rescues his people. That's the same God. That is Yahweh. That is Jesus. Now, before we close up uh, here today, I want to talk about three takeaways. And I think they're going to come up here. Three takeaways from this story and from what we're learning about God today how he reveals himself. The first one, the sovereignty of God should lead us to worship. If there's one thing I want to make sure that we say today is that it's that God is good, y'all. He is really, really good. Seeing him as sovereign is a good thing for us. It means that he's in control. It means that he is aiming our lives. He's aiming all of creation at some purpose. And that should lead us to worship. It should lead us to feel safe. To, to, it should lead us to make us uh, feel comfortable in the Lord's presence. We worship God for who he is because he is worthy of our worship. There's much more in the Bible than just these four chapters that we looked at today, okay? But thinking about just what we looked at today, anything that is put before God for comparison's sake, it's put to shame. Nothing can compare to him. This is who we worship. And the fact that he is who he says he is should lead us to worship. Number two, the sovereignty of God should lead us to humility. This is a big one, and this might be obvious after everything we've talked about today, but the world doesn't revolve around us. God has control. God is sovereign. He's actively in control of this world. And that includes the good, the bad, the ugly. Nothing can happen outside of God's power and outside of God's sovereignty. And that should humble us. And that, along with that humility comes a comfort as well. We often think about humility as a painful process, and most oftenly it is, right? Humility is very uncomfortable. It's awkward. You don't want to have to give up things, right, Or, or feel differently or view yourself differently, right? But think of the freedom. Think of the peace of knowing that God is in control and that we're not. The pressure's off. Nothing can separate us from him. Nothing we can do can thwart his plan, in creation, and in our lives. Even in the hardest times, the darkest times, there can be peace in knowing that God is present in it. He's with us. He comforts us. He sits with us. He walks with us. It's humbling, and we should lean into that humility. Third and finally, the sovereignty of God should lead us to embrace mystery. This is one of the hardest ones for sure. Not everything always makes sense. How can God be both good and all-powerful? How can he both be transcendent and imminent? How is he a good sovereign father, yet still we experience pain and suffering and sin in this world? These are hard questions, but questions that are so worth asking and wrestling with. The answers might not always be satisfying. They might not always make us feel uh, complete and full. They might not even meet our standards or our desires. But that is where we embrace mystery. I don't want to worship a God that I have all figured out and he fits into my little box that I can control and that I can uh, know everything about. So I encourage every Christian to embrace mystery. Yes, read your Bible, know your Bible, know about theology, read about stuff. This is all great. This is, this is good stuff to do. Read books. Books are great. Have conversations. Talk to people about stuff. But don't ever mistake the fact that there is a great deal of mystery when it comes to knowing God. Don't ever find yourself so confident that a single question or a single observation could send your faith spiraling downward embrace the mystery. Now there was a lot to unpack today and I'm just one person talking about it for like 30 minutes and so there's not enough to do justice to, uh, to this entire deep and enriching passage. Jay's going to talk about it more next week but I encourage you uh, uh, to, to, to lean into these passages, right? To look at these passages uh, in the Bible that sort of make us uncomfortable or reveal God to us in such a way that we're unfamiliar with. This story that we read today. These four chapters are a story of God making himself known. God reveals himself in the in, in and also his character within the plagues. And there's intentionality in the story and in the process. The text literally repeats over and over, this is how you will know that I am God. And God's story of his people it continues on. If you're using a physical Bible, you'll realize that we're just in the first like tiny percentage of the Bible. There's, there's more time, there's more story, there's more revelation to come. And if we skip ahead to the climax of the Bible, we would see that God revealed himself most clearly to the world through Jesus. God sent his son, who was both God and man, divine and human, to rescue us in our sin. Not unlike the enslaved Israelites in Egypt, God did not sit around waiting for his people to do something for themselves. He made the first move in sending Jesus for us, to die in our place, to bridge the gap between a perfect God and an imperfect man, humanity. If you find yourself listening to this story today and marveling at who God is for the first time, learning about him, and and even even a desire to, to meet the real Jesus for the first time, this story will only become more and more significant. If that's you today, if you're spiritually curious, if you're wanting to learn more about faith, I encourage you Come find me, come find someone who's been around Scarlet City for a while and inquire, okay? Ask questions. Ask the hard questions. We might not have all the answers, but we can point you in the direction of Jesus because that is the most worthy and essential story to be a part of in this life. Pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you did an Exodus story, God, and how it reveals your character to us, how it reveals who you are to us. And God, we don't always understand, we don't always know, Lord, and even today we didn't find all the answers, God, we didn't figure everything out today. But God, I I pray that the process of faith, Lord, I pray that the process of, of getting to know you more, Lord, would help us lean into these understandings of you, Lord, of your character that we we would see you as sovereign, Lord. We would see you as completely in control of everything in this world and in our lives. And at the same time, Lord, we would know you as loving, as a father, and also as someone who cares about justice, who desires to see people come to faith and also come to judgment, come to justice. So God, I thank you for that. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And I pray that the rest of today, the rest of this week, the rest of this year, Lord, the rest of our lives, Lord, we would continue to get to know you. We would lean into that process of faith, God, and view it as a process. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.